I stayed and I spoke to Professor Lowenfeld. And I told him, look, Professor, but why do you keep, you know, talking about the past? I want to learn about what's going on today. And then he just kind of uh, left, <laughs> relaxed and, uh, you know, you know this, this kind of movement with the hands. And he said, yeah, I know how you feel. But one thing you're going to discover is that when it comes to trade, everything is cyclical. So the problems that you're going to be dealing in the future are always going to be related in one way or the other to what happened in the past. If you do not understand what happened in the past, then it's going to be very difficult for you to understand what the rules actually mean or what the intention was. And then it's going to be also very difficult for you to find solutions for the future. Because maybe you come up with some magical solution that you think is going to work, but it turns out that they already tried that in the past and it failed for some very good reason. Then that kind of began changing the way I saw history. Uh, and then, okay, I gave it a try, and I, to date, I still remember many of the things I read at the time when I was a student in, in NYU, no? Then I come to Geneva, and then I realized at some point, like, oh my God, he's right. He yeah. was absolutely right. That was my guest, Roy Santana. Welcome to the Rodolfo Rivas Project. Roy is an economist and lawyer by training, and he currently serves as a counselor at the Market Access Division at the World Trade Organization. Our conversation delves into a variety of other topics, such as how Roy, after studying economics and law, became interested in trade. He traces his path from Costa Rica, the Ministry of Foreign Trade, through NYU, and eventually the WTO. Roy is an avid and self-defined true nerd, and discusses how dabbling in history of international trade and negotiations can inform our decisions today. If you like the show, please spread the word. Liking, subscribing, and or reviewing really helps. Take it away. Hello. Uh, Roy, it's really nice to have you here. How are you today? Fine, Rolovo. How are you? Good, good. Uh, we, we've been trying to do this for a while, but I'm glad it's now happening. Yeah, finally happening. No? <laughs> <laughs> I know you're quite busy, but uh, I think it's going to be a good conversation. Uh, you're originally from Costa Rica. Costa Rica, right? yes. Uh, when did your love for international trade uh, start? Can you pinpoint it? Uh, I think it began more or less like 1995, 1996, and it was very interesting because at some point I had to go to the U.S. when I was a student, like last year of university, yeah. and then I had to go to Washington, D.C., and there was an activity that was taking place in Georgetown, and then at some point I had to go, you know, to different things, and then I went to the bookshop. Then in the bookshop, I found this book by Professor um, Jackson. by Professor Jackson, and then somebody told me, "Oh, that's about this completely new organization they just formed. It's called the World Trade Organization." And I said, "World Trade Organization? What's that? I've never heard about it." No. Yeah. Then they told me, "Oh no, it's this thing replacing the GATT and the GATT. What's that? I didn't know." So I was very curious. Uh, I always liked international trade in, in general, or more, rather commercial law. Mm. Uh, I was trained as a lawyer, so I really liked that. Then I was very curious to see what it was about, so I bought the, the book. And then I went back, and I never really thought 
I mean, this is one of those kind of books you buy just out of impulse. Never thought I was actually going to be using the book on, <laughs> on, on anything. And then after I graduated, I used to work. I studied both law and also studied economics. Ah. So I was finishing my last year of economics. It's like a, a dual degree program? No, no, no. I, uh, I was, you were I was silly enough to study both at the same time. Which I do, I, I do not advise to anybody <laughs> <laughs> to do that. Uh, yeah, it's a very long story, but to cut it short, I, at some point I decided, let's say, I began studying economics, and then I made a mistake in the way you register for the courses, and then at some point, because of this mistake, I had to wait basically an entire year before I would take another uh, course in economics. So I thought to myself, what do I do? I cannot waste time. Oh. So I said, oh, well, let's, you know, people keep talking about law. Let's see what law uh, it's, about. <laughs> it's about. And then it turns out I also liked it. And then you had this kind of, you know, you question, you know, you know, do I continue with one? Do I continue with the other? So I kind of begun, I, th I think I would say fully studying law, but also taking courses on economics. So just to give you an idea, sometimes I will take like nine courses in one semester, which you can imagine how bad <laughs> that was. I was basically arriving like at 7 a.m. in the morning to university, which is at the time some of the courses would begin or at 8. And then until really late in the night, still there, you know, studying, working for papers, reading uh, and so on and so forth. And this was at a time where you didn't really have computers yeah. or laptops. Uh, so most of the things you really had to do by hand. Yeah. Most of the times you're writing very fast, you don't understand even your own handwriting. So lots of, of effort involved in that. So I was in the last year of, uh, let's say, economics. And then uh, at some point I was offered a job that came up. Uh, they didn't really say where the job was. So they just said somebody who you know, likes international trade, like something like that. So it was after you bought the book? After I bought the book. <laughs> and uh, I went and I had the interview, I had everything, and it turns out they were looking for people in the Ministry of Foreign Trade in Costa Rica. Uh, and I got the job. And then when I came in and began working on the issues, I was super excited because it's very, very concrete type of issues I had to deal with. And then I began working mostly in the context of the preparation of some free trade agreements. In this case, it was the free trade agreement between Central America and Chile. Okay. Um, and then it was very, very exciting times. You have to learn a lot. And then in my country, uh, we had some people who really were experts on some of the issues, but it was relatively few. So they really needed people to help them in developing some of these issues. So it was like really hands-on experience for you. Yeah, it was like, if you have seen this movie, Saving Private Ryan, it's yeah. like the first scene, you know, yeah, we just yeah. throw you in the, in the middle of war, bullets flying all over the place. So that was, that was the feeling you get. And okay. <laughs> because you have to really learn a lot very, very quickly. And then on top, your, let's say, counterpart on the other side of the table is very, very experienced negotiators from, from Chile, right? So it's like, this was the team that was in charge of negotiating, I think, uh, I don't know, 15, 20 free trade agreements. So it's like the super new person versus the super experienced. Experience. Very high expectations from the bosses as well that you have to do your job uh, properly. So, mm -hmm. so I had to learn very quickly, very fast uh, at the time, no? I, I didn't know uh, that you had like this, uh, both economics and 
law, but it makes sense actually knowing you, it, mm -hmm. it actually makes sense. <laughs> what what do you think that the convergence of the two areas of study has brought you like given you something maybe special or like a, way, a new perspective? I think it really gave me a very unique perspective on many of the issues, especially in international trade law. You have, yes, the legal part, but then there are typically very deep or, or complicated, uh, let's say, economic theories behind what we are supposed to do. Like, for example, this notion that, you know, why do we prefer tariffs over quotas or managed trade? Um, which is very one, really one of the foundations we have in the GATT. Mm -hmm. So if you're just a lawyer, perhaps you don't grasp sometimes the full extent of the, of the complexity or what is it that you're trying to achieve. And then also on the other hand, no, if you have somebody who is just purely an economist, sometimes they just really don't grasp, you know, why is it that the rules and the way they are drafted is important. Mm. So in my job, one of the things, I, sorry, I kept complaining about studying both things. It was a big, <laughs> <laughs> it was a, it was a big effort, but I, in reality, I'm very happy I did. Uh, and then typically in, in these negotiations or even today at the WTO, you have teams of lawyers, you have teams of economists, and then you can see there is this huge problem of miscommunication, no? So they are used to talk in a, for a certain audience in a certain way, and sometimes they just do not understand that the other side doesn't really grasp what is it that they are saying. So one of the things I do very frequently is to almost like translate into the language of, of the others. What so is you it? you are like the, the link between... Uh, sort of like the yeah, bridge, I like bridge. To, to put it in, in some, some cases, yeah. Um, but but then the problem is over time you end up doing something which is you know neither law nor uh, economics. So um, for example, my colleagues here at the WTO probably the, the lawyers think of me as the economist, and the economists think of me as the as the lawyer. So I'm not really sure where that puts me. <laughs> but I think in pr in practical terms it has been very useful. Yeah. Um, Maybe let's talk a bit about your experience at the, at the ministry in Costa Rica, mm -hmm. because I think that Costa Rica has been one of the countries that has really benefited from international trade. Mm -hmm. uh, they moved up the global value chain, and I think it was because of sound policy decisions that they made. And uh, can you tell us a bit about this? Yes, I, th I think the case of Costa Rica is quite interesting, because you had, uh, let's say, some people who were there for a relatively long time, And I think they were very visionary in respect of what was important in the long term, what were the steps needed, where are you, where do you want to be, what kind of reforms are necessary. And then one of my bosses was Annabel Gonzalez. Mm -hmm. So I mentioned people with very good knowledge, hardworking, uh, high expectations, very tough boss. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think she is one of the persons that really formed me in, in terms of you know, how you approach the preparations, you know, how do you approach the overall vision you are supposed to have on some of these uh, issues. And I think up, up to date, I still, let's say, behave in certain ways as I was trained in the Ministry of Trade, no? So it was an excellent school from that point of view. And uh, so you were there, and then how did you get to Geneva? Oh, that's a very long story as well. <laughs> uh, I like to say that all my failures brought me where I am. Yeah. So I mentioned before that I really like kind of the private aspect. 
So I was dealing with the public aspects. I was uh, at some point the person in charge of negotiating what we call market access, uh -huh. uh, which in free trade agreements mostly means the person in charge of dealing with the tariff yeah. uh, negotiations. But then given my formation, I always thought, mm, you know, maybe I should be actually rather focusing on something else because exactly what you thought before, not like oh, a lawyer and an economist. And then I had this notion in the back of my mind, you know, maybe competition policy is something that is more, let's say, appropriate to the kind of, of formation I have. Yeah. So even if I liked international trade, I thought, why not give it a try and see what this other aspect of basically antitrust competition uh, law is about. So I got a scholarship to go to NYU. Yeah. Uh, so I went to NYU and then uh, there was this very famous professor, Professor Fox, who was kind of one of the kind of gurus in respect of antitrust. So I went there, I enjoyed, I, I really studied very hard, but this was exactly at the time where the dot-com bubble was uh, bursting, okay. so 2001. And then if you were looking for a job in 2001, it was extremely, extremely difficult. It was literally thousands of lawyers being uh, laid off in, in the US. On top, you are a foreigner lawyer coming from a small country. So, you know, people do not necessarily think that you have a proper training or proper formations. You know, sometimes there are these biases that also kind of play uh, against you. In big law firms, typically when they're hired, they think more also in terms of the connections they're going to be making yeah. and the type of businesses that you're going to be bringing in. Uh, and when, once you are enrolling in some of these courses, you really don't think of any of those things. You just think, oh, I like this subject matter. Let's see what happens. And, and then I was completely unable to get any job, uh, even interview. So I was uh, sharing an apartment with a Lebanese friend, yeah. a Lebanese uh, uh, colleague. And then we had this kind of competition because we will send literally hundreds and hundreds of cover notes and uh, resumes to different law firms. And then the question is how many rejections we would actually be getting yeah, yeah. every day. And it was very sad, no? So, <laughs> <laughs> so just to give you an idea, I think I sent more than 600 letters. Yeah. And I had one interview with a law firm that told me, you know, well, maybe in five years when things normalize again, then, you know, maybe we can send you to Monterrey, Mevolion in, in Mexico so, so you can learn and then we see what happens from there. So it was like <laughs> a very, very uh, frustrating Actually, that, experience. Actually, no? that that you're telling me resonates a lot with my own experience because I actually went through the same thing, yeah. but 10 years later. Oh, with, yeah, with similar, the, the 2008. With, yeah, <laughs> I remember I... I they were firing lawyers, they were not hiring lawyers. Exactly. And I was from Mexico, which at the time was not uh, doing so well. Brazil and China were doing so well. Yes. And all my Brazilian co exactly. colleagues, they were the ones getting the job. I had exactly the same, the same thing, no? So, I, you know, complete defeat. So I had to back to my country. And on top, you are in New York. You are, you are in the middle of, you know, so many different cultures. You have classmates from all over the world. Is, as, and you, if you come from a small country, you're not really used to that kind of experience. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was like really, like I felt like a complete defeat having to go uh, back home. Did you, did because you sit of, for the bar? Huh? Did you sit for the bar? Ah, yeah, yes, I am authorized to, to yeah. practice law in the state of New York. So I also, I also did that. It was very interesting experience, which by the way, was not my plan at all, but mm -hmm. then I saw all my classmates being so excited about it and say, you know, I'm here, 
I have the time, why not? And then uh, I stayed. I also ran out of money too because of that. (laughs) So I had to rent a bed, not even a room, no, a bed in an apartment of somebody who was staying in Queens. So I had to take the train every day to go back to to New York. Anyway, it was a very interesting experience. <laughs> you are young, you're super excited, you know, with all, all the stories you are, you are making. So I go back home to Costa Rica, I get hired by this law firm, so very good uh, law firm that hired me. And then I begin doing the, let's say, normal type of a lawyer job in, in Costa Rica, so like dealing with contracts and all that, which if you remember the beginning of the story, that's what I was supposed to, to like, right? Yeah. But after having the other experience, you start realizing, hmm, you know, maybe I, the other experience was also quite interesting. And, and also, you also like, got the feel for the international aspect, like yeah, different yeah, culture, yeah. different. Exactly. Mm. So it is really, you know, exciting not to be talking, you know, with people from other countries. And if you have people from Latin America, the typical thing they begin talking at the beginning is, oh, you say it like this, and then we say it like that, <laughs> and you know what it is. And then at yeah. some point you move on, and then you really start experiencing the other yeah. culture, no? So with my friend from uh, Lebanon, for example, at some point we were mixing uh, hummus with tortillas, and uh, so a very interesting experience. No, <laughs> so at some point, the I receive a call from the ambassador of the permanent mission of Costa Rica in Geneva. So the ambassador, Ambassador Saborio, who was the representative here at the WTO, and they tell me, look, they they are going to be launching these big negotiations in the coming months. You know, basically, we need people to come here to Geneva. Would you be interested? And then I think I think he had not even finished asking when I had already yes. said, yes, <laughs> where where do I need to, to sign? How, how did he, did he find out about you through your experience at the ministry? The ministry was relatively small. And besides negotiating free trade agreements, one of the things I would do Uh, is I was what what we call here in Geneva the capital-based officer. So on some of the issues, I was the person who was in charge of coordinating internally, clearing it, the instruction with the bosses, and then you tell the mission here in Geneva what is it that they need to do. And then I was the capital-based officer at the time they were negotiating the ITA, so the Information Technology Agreement, and and the negotiations that followed right afterwards, no? So they included and agreed to liberalize some products, and then they were trying to liberalize additional products afterwards. So I was the person, you know, going to the Ministry of Finance, uh, the coordinating with our bosses what needs to be done. You know, is it is it about the revenue that we're foregoing, or is it about you know other aspects? And in Costa Rica, the one of the big issues was, for example, the promotion of uh, investment. Yeah. Uh, and as a result of some of these actions that were done, we had this big company, Intel, that was looking for greenfield type of investments in other countries. And at some point, they were considering investments in places like Israel, for example. Mexico was also competing. And then and I mentioned the visionary type of aspects. And then one of the things that my bosses did in Costa Rica is they realized, hmm, what is it that we can do that the other countries cannot do? in terms of giving investors security. And for investors, this issue of taxation, of course, is very important. And how would it demonstrate commitment that, yes, we really want them to be here. So at some point, Costa Rica joined the Information Technology Agreement precisely as a signal to the world that, yes, look, we're very serious. We want you to be here. And by the way, the conditions are not going to change just because you have a change in government 
in three, four, four years time, no? Mm. And, and then cost, uh, Intel basically came to Costa Rica to have these investments. Uh, and I think this really changed everything. No? So there's a lot of papers describing how Costa Rica moved from exporting bananas to all of a sudden exporting very relatively high-tech uh, products. And because Intel came, then all of a sudden other companies that probably never thought of Costa Rica yeah. as a place for investment realized, oh, you know, if maybe enough for them. If maybe you... Intel saw something that we haven't seen. So I think this kind of triggered lots of other investments afterwards. And now, uh, I think a few years ago, Intel actually moved out the production from Costa Rica. And the typical thing, I can see your face, Rodolfo. <laughs> <laughs> People imagine, oh my God, that was a big disaster for the country, but in reality, it was not a big because disaster. Because it was already diversified. Because this triggered a big diversification of the economy. Uh, so, yeah, it was not like nothing, but yes, it was, it was not life or death. And in fact, I think exports have kept growing after that. And also Intel, what they did, if I remember correctly, and I know this not because I work for Intel, but because, of course, I, I read these the things news. in the newspapers. <laughs> and then they, what they did is they actually moved some of the research and development type of activities to the country. So it's even more value added than the assembly of the, of the circuits. But anyway, so I, I was, had a very close relationship with the ambassador here in Geneva. And I think they were always happy because they will, you know, we need this information quickly, and then I will really be running around to get them the information. So I think they had a good image of, of my uh, work. Uh, so I said yes. And then I even got married as a result of that decision. <laughs> <laughs> you got married before you came here, and then everyone. Yeah, my, my wife always uh, teases me with this. Yeah, because then I, I was in a, let's say, long-time relationship mm. with uh, Adriana, who is my wife. And then because I, and we basically remained being in a relationship while I was in New York. So I had just come back and now I wanna go back again. I wanna go out again. And then uh, I told her, look, I want you to come with me. And then basically she told me, yes, but then you know, how do we know that this is gonna work? <laughs> and, uh, and then anyway, we, we decided to, to get married. So I got married and then moved to, to Geneva and this was uh, at the beginning of 2001, and I was supposed to come to Geneva on 19 September 2001, going in a flight through New York. And if you see the dates, this was basically one week after yeah. the whole 9-11. Uh, so I was grounded in Costa Rica because basically there was no way of, of being able to come to Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was a very difficult time, and then I ended up coming a bit afterwards to join the mission here in Geneva. And this was the about two months before the launch. <laughs> so this, this was just like two months before the launch of the Doha negotiations. So again, I arrive and they basically tell me, now you are dealing with agriculture, you are dealing with the non-agricultural market access, you are dealing with Remember, very small country, so you have basically three or four people. I'm familiar with that situation. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know exactly what, what I'm talking about. And I think people who live in big countries, big administrations, really don't understand the feeling no, of basically desperation you have of dealing with so many important yeah. issues at the same time. So again, 
Saving Private Ryan episode two, no? <laughs> so, so more bullets flying around, and then you're desperately again trying very quickly to learn uh, well, what think, is happening. But I think no? that's also useful because it gives you a broad perspective. Yes. Like the specialists who are dealing just with agriculture, they that's just true. see agriculture. They don't see like how it fits in the larger picture. That's true. Like I remember also my first actual meeting in the WTO was on TVT. I didn't know anything about it. And then the TVT meetings are like yes. hours and hours. I, I was dealing with most of the issues relating to trading goods. So I had to cover TVT, SPS, the ITA, uh, NAMA, the Non-Agricultural Market mm -hmm. Access, Agriculture, Trade and Environment, Textiles, which at the time was a, a big one, of, one of the big <laughs> things as well. So any of those in, uh, let's say, big administration, typically you have one or two people dealing with, and then I basically had to multiply myself by eight, no? Yeah. But anyway, I think all the experience I had in university, you know, having to do many things at the same time also prepared me quite well for, for that. So I mentioned this issue of, of my failures <laughs> bringing, bringing me here. But, 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 but I also think that all of those things like also show that sometimes things don't work out for a bit yes. until they work out. But you, you cannot see that when you're in the thick. You can only see that when you're looking back. Exactly. And then, uh, again, being a delegate is one of those really, really exciting type of jobs you have. And then this issue that you are you know, speaking on behalf of your country was super, super exciting. That, that like the first time it happened to me. And maybe yes. you can tell me, like, it feels like really special. You feel like you... Well, not only that, you're super nervous. Yeah, no? you're super nervous. <laughs> <laughs> you have this like trembling voice and it's everything. You know? <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm, de I'm delivering this statement on behalf of. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, unless you have actually gone through that experience, you, it's hard to understand the, the feeling that, that you get out of it. No. And then I was a delegate for the government of Costa Rica about three years. Uh -huh. Well, from 2001 up to 2004. And then at some point in the WTO Secretariat, there were some openings, because mm. many things happening. These are really the years where people were very optimistic in respect of what the WTO uh, could achieve. Yeah. Major investments by most of the uh, WTO members in terms of the people they were sending to Geneva, lots of efforts, big delegations coming from capitals all the time to really try to achieve uh, a major outcome. No? And then there were some of these openings, and then I competed for two of them. I competed for one in the um, Agriculture and Commodities Division, and another one in the Market Access Division. Uh, and in fact, it's interesting because when I came out of the exam, so typically you have an exam and then you have an interview, I came out of the exam and I was convinced, oh my God, I blew it up. Complete yeah. disaster. I was not able to really finish and uh, you know, complete everything as I thought I was going to be doing. So I thought, no, this is basically gone. Interview, I think, was one week before the Cancun ministerial. So again, you're dealing with eight issues. You have basically zero time to prepare. You know, maybe you begin reading or doing something at eight in the, in the night, and then from there to midnight, very difficult to do it. So my expectation was, okay, forget it. There's no way I'm going to be hired for, for this position for any job. In the WTO, typically you have something like 600 people who apply. Yeah. You have a short list between five, 10 people, and then that's your main competition. So I made it to the interview in the, in the short list, and then this is when you were having this uh, interview and the, the exam. And I thought, oh my God, this is, this is gone. 
I was not able to do it. So I was very, very surprised. They called you. When they called me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then I began working for the WTO Secretariat in 2004. Which again was very strange because you people are used to see you as a delegate. And then, you know, come 2004, all of a sudden you are there in the podium with the Secretariat. And I still remember, I have this kind of like mental image of the, you know, people with the open mouth, like, what is he doing there? No? <laughs> <laughs> you should sit here. <laughs> he went crazy. What is he doing there? No? Yeah. I only know you from, from your time at the Secretariat. And then when I found out that you had been at the... At a mission, it's like, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> and then, because I had that experience working for uh, a government as well, then I really have a soft spot for helping delegates. And yeah. Because I, I know how desperate you can feel. I know that you know you cannot be expected to know everything. So I always, always, I literally have an open door in my office. So I have a lot of delegates coming all the time. Uh, who are looking for assistance and then from the completely normal type of questions to completely type of questions and I never judge anybody and my job is to, I'm a service provider and mm -hmm. my service is to assist all these delegates in, in their job. No? And I can attest to that because I myself have contacted you many times. You always provide like good answers and you always have the time. So yeah. thank you for that. <laughs> uh, talking about the the ITA, I remember when we were negotiating ITA too, mm -hmm. you were also providing a lot of oh, uh, yes. support and also like a lot of maybe the history, which yeah. I think is something that you also have a certain interest, the history of the WTO and the negotiations. Yes, I have, again, I, know, I have many sweet spots, you know, <laughs> <laughs> or rather soft spots, you know, so one of them is also for history. And this one is interesting I, because, again, when I was studying in New York, I enrolled in the course on international trade. And this course was quite peculiar. I guess it's quite different from the way they teach it in other universities. And this was, at the time, uh, Professor Andreas Lowenfeld. Mm -hmm. So Professor Andreas Lowenfeld was convinced that you should not learn only the public aspects. You also have to learn the, let's say, private international trade law, right? So what's a letter of credit, how you handle this, how you handle that. And then his book, made a lot of emphasis on the historical aspects, no? So all these problems with steel in the 70s, the voluntary export restraints, and the uh, US, for example, negotiating with Japan because they were so fearful of the incredible growth of Japan uh, at the time. And I, was, I, I remember I was reading that. You are young, you are energetic. Remember just the WTO had been created. And I thought, oh my God, this is so boring, no? <laughs> Why do we keep reading all this historical stuff? Doesn't you make see sense. What's going on now? Forget it. I don't want to learn what was going on in the gut. No, I want to learn what the new WTO rules are. And by the way, I had an idea already because I had been in dealing with, with some of the issues, right? Uh, and then even one day I was so frustrated, I stayed and I spoke to Professor Lowenfeld. And I told him, look, Professor, but why do you keep, you know, talking about the past? I want to learn about what's going on today. And then he just kind of uh, left, <laughs> relaxed and, uh, you know, you know this, this kind of movement with the hands. And he said, yeah, I know how you feel. But one thing you're going to discover is that when it comes to trade, everything is cyclical. So the problems that you're going to be dealing in the future are always going to be related in one way or the other to what happened in the past. If you do not understand 
what happened in the past, then it's going to be very difficult for you to understand what the rules actually mean or what the intention was. And then it's going to be also very difficult for you to find solutions for the future. Because maybe you come up with some magical solution that you think is going to work, but it turns out that they already tried that in the past and it failed for some very good reason. Then that kind of began changing the way I saw history. Uh, and then, okay, I gave it a try. And I, to date, I still remember many of the things I read at the time when I was a student in, in NYU. No? Then I come to Geneva, and then I realized at some point, like, oh my God, he's right. He yeah. was absolutely right. And I think I never uh, mentioned to Professor Lowenfeld, he already passed away, and I think I never had the opportunity to thank him for, for this. And then I had this interest of always kind of going back and see what happened before, no? Which is, as a delegate, you know, we don't have much time. So it's not something yeah. like you don't have the luxury of doing these things. So it was a bit of a masochist trying to learn what was going on in the past. And in the area of tariffs and tariff negotiations, at some point, there was this book that was written by Mr. Anwarul Hoda, yeah. who used to be a deputy director. He's from India. He was used to be a deputy director here at the WTO. And this is like the ultimate nerd guide for for tariff negotiations, no? So like every single detail, every single little thing that had happened, when and why, and the references to the documents. So the only thing I was able to do when I was preparing for the interview I was going to have was really mm -hmm. study very carefully that book. And I think, to, again, today, even to date, many of the things I know about tariff negotiations and many of these issues I learned through, through that book. And a few years ago, Mr. Hora was actually working on a second edition for his book, and I worked with him like two years, and I kept telling him, Mr. Hora, this is my way of thanking you. <laughs> Without you, I would probably not be able to, to be doing this job uh, today. And then I also wanted to basically be able to help him to have this really as complete picture as possible in, in respect of many of these issues. Then, because you are dealing with delegates, they also come and ask you sometimes completely crazy questions. No, Do you know why do we have this rule? No. Do you know why is it that we're doing it like this and not in this other way? So also in my daily job, I have to keep looking back in respect of all GATT uh, documents. And I have a very good friend who works in, in legal division. And then sometimes we keep we have this internal joke that we're a bit like Do Dr. Hauser. I don't know if you remember that <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. TV series when he was the one looking always at these completely crazy diseases. So we sometimes feel like that. No? So they ask you something and then you have to go research in the past how it works. So at, at some point you realize that, that you really have a passion for some of these historical yeah. aspects. No? And uh, there's two things I wanted to mention. Like, uh, I think a couple of weeks ago you, you gave like, a talk or a presentation on the GATT negotiation. Mm -hmm. And I was... On the request offer, yeah. Yeah. And I, I, was, I was amazed uh, because... I thought that it would like being involved in negotiations now that take so long, that how fast the negotiation happened. Yes. Like, how can you explain that and what's maybe missing now from because of what we're not having that? You know, I have been asking myself exactly that question, and I think you are probably making reference to this uh, presentation I did to the fisheries uh, yeah. subsidies negotiations. And then they asked me to explain how request offer works in the context of tariffs. So there I explained that basically the GATT negotiation took something like six months, no? Yeah, which is crazy. Which is completely crazy, no? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Now, the gut negotiations, you have two aspects. One aspect is the one in terms of the, let's say, negotiation of the rules. So Article 1, Article 2, Article 3, and all of, all of that. And then they benefited from the larger discussions that were taking place in the ITO, the International Trade Organization negotiations, right? So the whole Havana Charter yeah. and all that was to set out the rules. So basically what they did is what we will today call cut, cut and paste, right? So they copied many of the provisions that had been discussed somewhere else and incorporated into this general agreement on tariffs and trade. But what really mattered for them was, no, look, we cannot wait until this enters into force. We need to negotiate, exchange tariff concessions, make sure that the tariff part is stabilized, at least amongst the major traders. So that's why we need to have this, this agreement, no? So next, which sounds very easy, no? but if you have 23 contracting parties and you are going to be negotiating basically product by product, with, which involves identifying who is the principal supplier. So basically you need to have thousands and thousands of meetings uh, to discuss and decide what is going to be done. No? So if you think about it, there were no basically commercial airlines. So most of the people who came here to Geneva came by, by sea or by train, or may I may even make the joke, maybe even some of them by horse. Right? <laughs> yeah. Because remember, this is after World War II, not necessarily many people having cars as well. Uh, and then it's not like you can just keep coming back and forth, which would be the way we do things today. So these people many came here and stayed in Geneva for six months or, or more, no? Uh, and then very little communication back home. So some of them came with let's say, general, general instructions. Mm. But the, I think the most important part is they really had the will to have something. So remember, this is after World War II, so the world has been completely devastated. So there is this notion that new institutions have to be created because we don't want to be again in the same situation where because of economic or other different aspects, we end up with the world killing each other. No. Mm. So I think that many of those elements are not really present today, no? So we have better communications, it's easier to come to Geneva, but perhaps that will or, or that feeling that what we're doing is very important and it has to be done. It's not there. Perhaps it's not there, I don't know, because you're a delegate, what do you think about that? We always have, I think, the feeling now that we can always wait a bit more, wait a bit more, wait a bit more, so the waiting a bit more became part of the, of the game of the negotiations. As well, and, no? and the constant communication, although you would think it would help, maybe it's counterintuitive and maybe it's not... Uh... Well, yeah, but I think communication is extremely important because you want to make sure that all the interests of all the stakeholders are taken into account, which is perhaps what, something we're doing now better than what we were doing uh, before. But then at the same time, I think that feeling that something must be done, that we need to be creative, find some of like middle ground to be able to strike some form of, of agreement. I think at least at the time, it was very, uh, let's say, visible in what they were trying to do. No? And I even wrote this little story uh, some time ago uh, based on documents that were restricted of how the gap negotiations took place. So there is this story of how the US and the UK were basically clashing uh, and having big arguments because the US insisted on having this most favored nation yeah. principle and then basically no exceptions to the most favored 
nation principle because they felt discriminated by the Ottawa imperial preferences. So the Commonwealth basically had built a big wall of tariffs uh, and they were only able to trade amongst themselves. For the, for the US, this was a very big priority to, to change this, right? But then for the UK, after World War II, this was very difficult. And then they felt that if they made the changes too quickly, this would lead to a complete economic meltdown of, yeah. of their economy. And they even had this famous dollar crisis that was taking place more or less uh, at the time. They didn't have enough currency to be able to purchase the, the imports, no? So I, for me, I was just very impressed as to how there was this very big vision that no, it's more important to deal with the overall strategic interest uh, of the US. And then they basically the instruction that came from the State Department and even the president was, no, let's take into account what our allies uh, want to have. And then we keep moving forward and then we see what happens afterward, no? And then for the US negotiators at the time, and this was uh, Mr. Will Clayton was the lead negotiator at the time. He even quit after the GATT was concluded because apparently he couldn't take it. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, he was, he was very, very, well, he was relatively old, so, you know, he retired. But uh, according to some, at least, uh, let's say, people, uh, he was so frustrated with the way the whole thing had gone down because he felt it was a big failure in terms of the trade objectives, no? Now, what's interesting is a few years later, in new negotiations that took place, they actually got away with what they wanted to, to have, no? Yeah. So it, it was really an issue of waiting perhaps uh, a bit more. And then this kind of provisional agreement that temporarily entered into, fo into force in, in 90, 1947, all of a sudden became the cornerstone of what we still have no. today, no? So yeah. it's another story of something that perhaps at the time feels like a failure ends up being a very big success, no? Uh, I remember seeing, I, I think originally you posted, so you did this out of your own uh, interest, like you just wanted to do some research? Yeah, well, it's, this is, you know, again, because I, I am always dealing with some of these things, I have kind of in the back of my mind that but maybe... And then you decided to put it like on paper. Yeah, maybe one day when I have time, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> and the maybe never comes. Uh, so what I did is I had this little post in LinkedIn. Yeah, that's where, that's where, and this is what I want to ask you. So I saw it on LinkedIn, but then I think that uh, it got like a lot of attention. Like people were like, oh, this is so interesting. Thank you for yeah. bringing this up. Uh, and no. then I think that the WTO itself like, was yeah. like, Let, let's do something with it. Yeah, I, I did one which was very short. And then my main goal is have something which is very simple, very accessible have the pictures of yeah. the people because on top we are sitting here in the WTO, we have many archives, uh, many of these pictures which are just there stored and nobody gets to see them. So make a little story for the general public and see what happens. And then there was massive interest. I was very surprised in, in LinkedIn, typically you post something and then, you know, perhaps your closest kind of acquaintances <laughs> see it. And then I, let's say I never thought of, of LinkedIn as a platform where people would be interested on, on some of these especially historical aspect, no? Yeah. So because of that, I had a second part and then I still had a third part. And in the third part, I really kind of even went into More deep. the deep archives yeah. and I worked with some of our people, uh, let's say, who really keep many of the things we had, like selecting what could be interesting, what could not be interesting, and then making a little story because at the end of the day, people want to see a story, no? And then in the last story is mostly about this young, person, Mr. Julio Lacarte, yeah. who for us, if you go around in the building, you see Julio everywhere, no? Yeah. 
So he was an ambassador for Uruguay and he was one of the main architects of the GATT. But then what I didn't know is that he was actually working in the Secretariat at the time when the GATT was being negotiated. So at the time he was not really working for Uruguay, he was working at the time for the United Nations and the Secretariat giving support, which I, I didn't know. It's one of those things that perhaps we today do not even Think. realize, right? So how, you know, all the practical things they had to do, like, you know, do we need a seal or not? Do we include Spanish or not? How do we deal with these letters of acceptance? So for me, it was fascinating because I've been I mean, doing what I do. That's kind of the questions you have to deal uh, many times as well. So I wrote it and then people liked it. And then I think at some point the WTO decided to put some of those things together into a new section in the WTO website yeah. on the history of of multilateral institutions. Then I had one friend who, Mr. Hunter Notich, oh, I don't know, yeah, yeah, from yeah. New Zealand, and then he got super interested and then he decided to do his own uh, piece as well. And then there's another one which is also included in the same section, which describes a meeting in the middle of the Atlantic that took place between the President of the United States and the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom in the middle of World War II to talk about setting up the new economic institutions after the World War II would be concluded, which if you think about it in today's terms, is absolutely crazy, no? Yeah, crazy. So two leaders of the major, let's say, powers in, in respect of what's going on in the war, cross the Atlantic to meet, and they are not talking about the war, they're talking about, uh, let's say, uh, economic type of aspects. So no, this is a famous Atlantic Charter that laid down basically all the work that happened afterwards in respect of setting up the IMF and the World Bank and let's say even the, the GATT and the trade conditions we, we have today, you know, so. Uh, Very interesting stories and young people. Don't know them. That one I was not even aware of, so I learned this through through him. And uh, yeah, so I saw those posts, but those are not the only ones. Like you've been really active on whenever there's like uh, an event, I remember one particular that comes to mind when the World Cup, like you little ah, yeah, yeah. statistics <laughs> on the on the bold uh, trade and... Yeah, again, do, doing what I do, I have access to a lot of information and I'm always very curious on some of these aspects. And then I just thought it would be fun. So it's a, it's a way of bringing the world of trade. People have the attention on some specific, let's say event or something that is going to be happening. So I thought, you know, why not give the trade angle on some of these uh, events as well, no? So I have done something for that, for the World Cup, mm -hmm. which again was, became super popular because I think people were not even aware how this is treated in respect of customs uh, and the statistics, no? I also did something for uh, St. Valentine's. Yeah, the, the roses. The one on the roses, <laughs> and, yeah, exactly. And then I also did one in respect of the only product in the harmonized system where I think you can actually see the difference between men and women that has to do with clothes, no? So yeah. what is the difference and what can you see on, on that, no? Um, this is very interesting because when I, when I started working in trade, like in 2010, 2011, I remember I would talk to my friends and no one really knew what trade was like. They were like, oh, what's that? Yes. Like a couple of years later, everyone is talking about trade. It's everywhere in the news. and Everyone reads the news, but maybe they they read the take of one reporter that maybe is not well informed on the situation. Yeah. So I think it's good to have like the actual people like you who work inside to kind of like have an outlet where they can yeah. 
found more information. Is this also some a motivation for you, or this is just like a byproduct? Well, th this is always like a one of those uh, virtuous kind of circles, no? So you think what you are saying is probably completely crazy. You have an interest, but then you realize there are other people who also have an interest on some of these issues. So it motivates you. Yeah. No. So I guess it's a bit like your your project. <laughs> no, it's also the same thing. No, perhaps yeah. begins like a crazy idea, but then you realize, yeah, there is an interest for people to learn more about this, and then this early, let's say success that you have in respect of some of them motivates you to keep doing it for for other ones as well no uh, i also saw the video it's, it's like your piece on on ip and some of the movies by quentin tarantino <laughs> <and all those. laughs> and, and that's also like what you said like that's like something that you have in your mind yeah but then you're like i mean i've been thinking about this maybe i should just do it and see and it's gotten like good response but the idea is just to like continue working and finding things yeah And then, and then, of course, my interest is not just tariffs. Sometimes, you know, I like to watch movies and I like to watch a TV series. And then sometimes you see something that triggers a memory from some of these other things that you know about. So I remember I was once coming in a plane and then I was watching a documentary on Venice. And then at some point, the person in the documentary goes to this island and then they start talking about, you know, the purpose of the island, which was basically to serve as the place for the quarantines. And then, of course, because I had worked on SPS, this triggers a lot of memories in respect of the way we handle, let's say, the prevention of the spread of diseases and, and uh, some of these other elements as well. And then I wrote a little thing on that I, as well. I, I think I missed this one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that one is about this island. Okay, let me tell you the story. Because <laughs> I like telling stories. No? <laughs> tell me. So it turns out that Venice was a major trading power. Yeah. And their trade power derived from people going around by ship. So they will buy things, bring it to Venice, and then Venice was basically the distribution center where they will be sending to other places, right? And if you think about it, this is around like 1400s or before. So you're bringing food, you're bringing spices, you're bringing all sorts of different things. What could possibly go wrong? A lot can go wrong. And then at some point they had the bubonic type of disease, no? Yeah. So basically like half of Venice gets wiped out because of this disease. But then if you are a trading power, what do you do? You cannot just decide we're going to stop trading, no? So what can we do to keep trading, but at the same time, you know, make sure that the products that we're bringing on are safe and we don't have this type of diseases again, no? Uh, so they came out with this very interesting idea. So they designated this island that I mentioned before. And then it was every single ship coming into Venice first had to do a stop here. So you will have people who will go around inspecting. If they thought there was no risk, then the ship would be allowed to continue. If they thought maybe there was a risk, they had this rule that then they had to stay there, the ship and the, the crew as well, for 40 days. Yeah. So... In, in Italian, uh, 40, giorni, 40 giorni. Sorry, sorry, Roberta, I have, a, <laughs> I have an Italian colleague and uh, she keeps trying to teach me Italian. I'm very bad with Italian. But then the notion of quarantena, quarantine, comes precisely from these 40 days that people had to wait here in, in Venice. No? And if you think about the way today we deal with this sanitary, phytosanitary measure, it's very much the same 
idea. We are more sophisticated in the use of the science. We are more sophisticated in terms of the type of instruments that we use. But the basic idea is exactly the same one that, that they developed here in Venice so many years ago, no? Yeah. Also, another thing that I saw, like, uh, when it was a couple of maybe months ago, is this video that the WTO made with you and, and Suja. Ah, yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> also, I mean, I think, I, I don't know if you can say something about this, but I've seen that the WTO seems to be more active on that front to communicate with the with everyone, like through yes. videos, through conferences. Yes. Uh, and this, uh, this is something that I think is very useful to spread the word. Uh, yes, I think I have some absolutely brilliant colleagues in the media and, and external relations. And in this case, they came up with the idea they wanted to do this kind of series of videos to basically inform people in very, very simple terms about some of the key concepts mm -hmm. that we have. And I had worked with them on some other uh, projects, so they thought maybe I would be interested. And then uh, I also discussed with my director, so my director, Suja, is the one that also appears there. And then we have this kind of like fun, relatively funny video trying to explain what a tariff is. And now. who came up with the, 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 the script of the... We, we have a very creative team, so this <laughs> script, uh, we gave some ideas, but then we have a colleague, her, her name is Claudia, mm -hmm. and then she came up with the script, and then we also have other people, uh, Janaina, she's typically the director, and they also have this kind of idea in terms of where the camera should go or not. Then the cameraman also has a lot of creative ideas, so it's really kind of a collective, okay. very, very collective effort uh, where we kind of provide the substance, but then it's really our colleagues from uh, media who come up with all these crazy ideas. And, and for you, of course, you're not used to doing these things and then sometimes hard to imagine what the final project is going to be, but I think they do a brilliant no, job. Actually, and we have a new one coming. Yeah, also with you? Ah, you'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're trying to have a, a new one. Uh, yes. Good. Now, sometimes it's, it's these things, you become self-conscious about how you look and it's how, how you speak and anyway, so. Actually, like I have to edit this and I hate my voice. Like just going through it is terrible. <laughs> so I'm familiar with that. Yeah, and I remember I was once in Indonesia and somebody told me, oh my God, you sound just like the telenovelas. <laughs> <laughs> Which ones? Which I didn't, yeah, well, I guess it was not really a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> Now, last, last thing before you go, because I know that you're busy. Yes. Um, I also, at one point, I wanted to, to do a PhD, and I, I remember I talked to Petros, and he said, like, talk to Roy. Yes. So I talked to you about it, and uh, I didn't go through it with it because I was uh, super busy, a lot of things going on. Yeah. But I just want to ask you, is that something that you, did you eventually end up doing, or is that in the cards? Uh, yeah, that, that's another one of my failures, <laughs> <laughs> I guess. Because, again, I have sometimes these completely crazy ideas of things I would like to do. And then at some point I had an idea that I think it is possible to do an index to measure how difficult some of the disputes are. So basically create an index where you will have one number that tells you this case had this degree of difficulty or not. Uh, so yeah, I decided, you know, why not? This is something I really am interested. Uh, I like the kind of the disputes and the statistics and I have some other projects in that area as well. And then I decided, well, why not do this in a PhD? So in fact, I know you're, you were in Stanford, right? Yeah. Well, 
I applied to, to Stanford. I was accepted to a program in Stanford, but then I was not really able to get enough uh, funding. So I didn't have a, like a full scholarship, and then you have a family, yeah. uh, young children, so the equation completely changes. So, yeah, it, let's say it was, I was very frustrated because I was not really able to pursue that uh, avenue, and then I spoke with Petros, and then Petros told me I was completely crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, but why would you go and, and do a PhD somewhere else on something where you are just kind of beginning, you are not really the expert? on that, why not do a PhD on something where you are already the, the expert? So I said, yeah, well, that's, that's true, no? So, and then I have all the information and I have all the everything. So I, was, I actually enrolled in a PhD program where I was going to basically explore why is it that some of these sectoral, uh, let's say, negotiations we have in the WTO are successful and other ones are not. Oh. One of them, of course, the Information Technology Agreement and, EGA. and also the Information Technology uh, Expansion and also the EGA. So I have been involved in many of these uh, sectoral negotiations. So it was an interesting question. So I uh, put forward a PhD proposal, which was uh, accepted. But then, of course, one aspect I did not really account for, account for <laughs> is the fact that families start growing. Yeah. You need more time. Your responsibilities of work also start to grow. You have, in fact, some of these negotiations <laughs> going on. So it has become very, very difficult to manage, find, let's say, find the time to sit down uh, and write. And I always fear the moment in which I'm going to be getting this letter from the university telling me, you have not done it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we hereby expel, expelled you from the program, no? <laughs> but anyway, that's in the long term one of my projects which I think I still haven't given up. I, I would really like to write that and explore that in, yeah, at some point. No? no, and I hope you do, because I'm sure it's going to be very useful. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you very much, Roy. It's been a pleasure. Uh, we'll see you around. Thank you very much, and it's my pleasure to join you in this project. I always follow you also in, <laughs> in some of the things. I like especially when you mix the movies and the... Yeah, and, and some of the issues as well. So I, I see myself reflected in some, <laughs> some of the things you do. So I just encourage you to keep doing that as well. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed it, please let us know by liking, subscribing, and or reviewing. A small act from you that means the world to me. If you want to get in touch with me, you can do it by email at rr at rodolforivasproject.com or at rivasrod on Twitter at Rodolfo Rivas Project on Instagram or through our page on LinkedIn. Catch us next time.